And good evening to everybody. Uh, this evening is a special edition of Prophecy Update. Uh, glad to have you here, all of you that were with us on our Wednesday night Bible study. I wanted to uh, take advantage of the moment and um, uh, talk about what's going on, uh, Israel at war and some of the facts around it. Uh, and I even have a special guest coming. You don't want to miss this because uh, my good friend Steve, the tour guide, uh, who's coming in uh, to uh, talk with me. You, you don't want to miss that. So that's coming up in a few minutes. But, you know, um, shocking uh, things that have happened in the past five days. Uh, maybe uh, the numbers are changing even as we speak. But last I looked, over 1,200 Israelis have been left murdered over the past five days alone. Um, elderly women and children uh, babies, uh, the slaughtering has been horrific. And, you know, um, if you, if you haven't heard it, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I'm mixed whether people should look at the images that are coming, you know, but social media has changed the whole thing, but we're seeing babies beheaded, um, you know, people shot point blank. Uh, it's just a, a horrific slaughtering of, uh, Jewish and uh, U.S. citizens. We we learned yesterday that there's at least 14 U.S. citizens that were killed in this attack by Hamas there in uh, Gaza, crossing the border into Israel. Um, but uh, overall, 100 to 150 hostages, uh, including some Americans, I think. I guess there's about 20 Americans that are still missing. We don't know if they're hostages or, or uh, perhaps killed and we haven't found them. But um, it, it is interesting. The U.S. citizens have been um, part of this discussion. But, uh, you know, Hamas says it's going to kill these hostages, um, you know, one by one if, um, if the Gaza attacks uh, continue. Uh, so Hamas is trying to use the hostages as sort of a shield. Um, but the thing about this that I, I think it's important for people to realize, this attack came on the 50th anniversary of Yom Kippur War. And... and um, uh, the, the comparisons to Yom Kippur are quite interesting to me. Um, you know, Yom Kippur War was October 6th through the 25th of 1973. Um, and, you know, the conflict uh, started with a surprise attack on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar when Egypt invaded the Sinai Peninsula and Syrian forces crossed into the Golan Heights. So it was, uh, you know, from the south, from the north, Israel two front, um, you know, uh, other uh, Arab forces came along with the Syrians and the uh, Egyptians. But, you know, the Jews on their holiest day had their TVs all turned off and no buses or trains moving. Uh, day of Atonement uh, shut down the nation, which is really similar to this uh, 50th anniversary attack of Yom Kippur, um, where the Jews seem to be in, in a similar similar fashion caught off guard, uh, which is very uncharacteristic of the Jews. Their their intelligence um, has always been you know second to none, uh, knowing and uh, sort of anticipating these kinds of attacks. But um, you know the Arabs they uh, found on Yom Kippur back in 1973 their initial attack was uh, shockingly successful. Um, people, you war history buffs uh, know that one of the biggest, largest tank battles in all of history took place. Uh, some say 5,000 Syrian tanks uh, were taking on a very much smaller Israeli army. In fact, there's a story in the Yom Kippur War, uh, a single tank taking on hundreds of, of Syrian tanks. And this Israeli tank commander uh, under the name Ziggy uh, would make them think there were more tanks than there actually were by popping up over a hill, backing up, 
uh, moving, popping up, and you know it eventually held them up. Uh, this this guy held this whole army of tanks single-handedly for over eight hours. This guy held this um, this army of tanks back. Um, biblically proportioned battle there in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Um, Syria calculated that it would take uh, four days of battle to get to the Sea of Galilee over the Golan Heights. Um, but it was taking them less than one day. They were just blown over this with almost no resistance. And so they, they thought, okay, something's wrong. You know, these tricky uh, Jews um, have a trick up their sleeve and that we're, you know, driving into an ambush or something. <clears throat> but actually, uh, as, as it turns out, there were only 168 Israeli soldiers on du duty on the Golan Heights on the Yom Kippur Day. Um, and so the Syrians thought it was a trick, so they held back and it gave Israel more time to rally the troops. Now in the south, Egypt was coming up from the south, um, and it's, it's quite a story. It's worth knowing the Yom Kippur, uh, you know, Israeli army, Southern Command General, at that time, Ariel Sharon, uh, was um, in this picture with, uh, you know, defense missioner Moshe Dayan. You, maybe you remember these images if you're older. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, in October of 1973, the western bank of the Suez Canal in Egypt, this is where they were, the Israelis were trying to stop this huge army coming up from Egypt. Um, and it seemed somewhat like impossible that the Jews would even survive this attack because they were outnumbered. And even the technology that the uh, Egyptians had was pretty, uh, you know, advanced. But Ariel Schroen, disobeying orders, went a long way around, passing the Egyptian army, kind of an end around, marched just uh, 100 kilometers from Cairo uh, and encircled the Egyptian, the third Egyptian army. Um, and it was quite a, an amazing uh, feat uh, militarily. Um, so, you know, this, 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 knowing a little bit about the Yom Kippur War, you see it's kind of a similar deal. Uh, and um, the, the questions that we have are, you know, what, what do the Hamas hope to accomplish? Uh, you know, some would say they were successful because they slaughtered 1,200 Jews. Um, what's the reasoning for that? What's the mindset uh, that makes a person do these things? Um, and this is where uh, I think having uh, Steve the tour guide coming in to help us. I'd like to introduce Steve the tour guide to talk with him uh, about what's happening in Israel. Uh, he's a longtime friend of mine, uh, uh, IDF soldier, uh, tour guide. Um, but also, I, I'm really thankful for his, um, the, you know, just he spent a life uh, in Israel and studying Greek, Roman, Jewish literature in the Second Temple period uh, there at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, but I also uh, just, you know, like talking about all the you know, Arab-Israeli conflict and geopolitics, uh, fill in the blank. He, he's an expert in my opinion. So I, I'm really honored to have Steve on. How you doing, Steve? Well, friend, I'm happy to be with you, uh, considering, of course, the circumstances. It's such a tough thing. You know, I mean, it's hard to um, talk about even in some of these things that we're seeing, um, you know, and uh, first first off, um, are you in contact? I mean, some of your friends, you have friends really all over Israel. Um, sure. You know, there's got to be a personal level to this for oh. you. Well, you'll be able to relate to this. Uh, one of the tour guides that I work with on multi-bus tours, her niece was killed at the Rave Music Festival. The manager of Sorrel Tours, a gentleman by the name of Uri, his son-in-law-to-be was murdered at one of the uh, army bases 
uh, uh, fell during the first hours of the Hamas raid. Mm. And uh, this morning, a woman at the office uh, broke out in tears. And small business in Israel that I just named three casualties of. Uh, so it is a war that's become personal. Um, 1,200 people are known to be dead. Just uh, to make that relative to an American or a Canadian or somebody else, you know, in the a larger country watching this, that would be tens of thousands of Americans if you account for the difference in the two populations. Tens of thousands of Americans uh, is the 1,200. So it's touched every life in Israel. You know, uh, there's a famous expression, I think, in the Talmud that says that when you take a life, you destroy the world. What it's inferring is that all of us are attached to somebody. There's parents that love us, yeah. brothers and sisters that love us, friends that love us. And, and it is touching the whole world that is presently the state of Israel. Yeah, you know, you talk about the scale, you know, with the United States, you know, it'd be like us losing tens of thousands. Um, what you know what makes this um you know we've been t we've been talking about this um you know attack uh you know from prophecy update perspective uh here at athe but um what makes this attack so different than perhaps you know the intifada wars and 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 you know really some of the previous wars including yom kippur what makes this different this seems different in a lot of ways to me so in our lifetime, Brett, and, and you've been coming to Israel since the early 2000s, so even in the time of our relationship, the last round, the second intifada, which took about, uh, it was spread from, let's say, 2000 to 2004, that killed approximately the same number of people, about 1,100 uh, people. But remember, over four years of blitzing cafes, buses, you know, uh, hotels, all of that happened in one day, which is correctly being called the darkest day of Israel's history was on this past Saturday, October 7th, even eclipsing the shock of the first hours of the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago, which, by the way, was the last time Israel had declared a war. All these other wars that you and I refer to as wars, uh, such as the 1982 invasion of Lebanon that lasted for a couple years, the 2006 war with Hezbollah, and all the other wars with Hamas. In Israel's own lexicon, those were just military operations. Mm. This is the first war. That just shows you how they see it and are about to take it to an unprecedented level, unprecedented at least for the last 50 years. Wow. Um... Now, with that, um, you know, Israel, this is so uncharacteristic. It seems that they, you, you know, were caught off guard. Um, you know, we've been talking about, you know, just in the last two months uh, about the possibility of a coordinated attack, you know, by looming, you know, Iranian proxies. Um, mm -hmm. And so it seems to me like, you know, um, with Israel's intelligence, Mossad, how did this sneak by them? What do you think about that? Sure. So disunity in the country, which has been for all to see for the last several months, and unfortunately, arrogance and complacency. Now, I told you, Brett, in our own discussion before we went on air, there are credible reports in the media, uh, and they, the person who made the claim was the head of the Egyptian intelligence. Now, remember, Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. The two security apparatuses work together. They're not an enemy of Israel. And the head of that intelligence agency made the statement that 10 
days before this attack, he warned the present Netanyahu government that such an attack on such a scale was being planned. And it was waved off as well. Hot. What, what are these idiots going to do to us? So, again, another parallel with the 1973 Yom Kippur War. It's not like Israel. People think that Israel had zero intelligence in 1973, that the enemies were amassing their forces on the border. Golda Meir, the prime minister at the time, actually knew several hours before the war broke out that the enemies had been amassing their troops on the border, but she falsely interpreted it as saber-rattling. And for that reason, she, after the war concluded, she, she had to resign in disgrace. It is a very similar parallel. Complacency, arrogance, and months preceding it of disunity, which put out before the whole Muslim world the belief that, look, Allah has confused the enemy from within, and now is the time to pounce on them. Wow, so Golda Meir, uh, she historically is still esteemed. Do you think Netanyahu survives this? Uh... He definitely won't survive the war politically, and I'm not sure his legacy will survive. Hmm. And, and look, it, this is sad. You're talking about the second most consequential leader in Israel's history after David Ben-Gurion. Mm -hmm. uh, I myself had voted for Benjamin Netanyahu in many elections. Uh, and I could tell you about all the things he positively did for the country on, you know, the eco economic sphere, international, Israel's international standing, the Abraham Accords of the of his, of the last couple of years. But in the last year, he his uh, he and his government have, in my opinion, rightfully being accused of sowing tremendous disunity uh, in the country, of trying to rush through reforms, and it's not like. It's not like it's illegitimate to say, oh, well, maybe he has a point, you know, about the substance he was trying uh, to do. But where he rightfully gets blamed is he tried to do it fast track without causing any consensus in society, not caring what the majority of the people think. You know, remember, the majority of the people in Israel are the people that are being called now to fight this war in the Gaza Strip. It's not the communities in Mea Sharim, that's the Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in Jerusalem, that forms his major political uh, base. You know, uh, Netanyahu's current political base is mostly ultra-religious or ultra-Torah observant Jews. They're not the ones who are, you know, bear the security apparatus of the country. They're not the taxpayers largely in the country. And he tried to rush through those reforms without even trying to pretend that he has an open ear to what the other side of the country has to say. For that, he's rightfully blamed. Mm. Uh, and like I said, the enemy saw this. Uh, they saw the disunity and, uh, you know, you saw the, the, these massive uh, protests in Israel, you know, hundreds of thousands of people pro coming out to protest in the streets of a country that only has 8 million to 9 million people. Uh, so it was irresponsible, again, Without getting into the substance of the reforms he wanted to do or didn't do, it's not important. It's the way he tried to fast track them without caring about any forming any national consensus. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lesson for even this country and other countries as well. In super politically divided 
countries as we currently are here, whether it's the United States or Israel, there's a real danger. You know the verse in the Bible that a house divided cannot stand. And we have enemies, we have savage barbarian hordes waiting at the gates that causes damage. It does not help when one half of the country, regardless of who that half is, tries to drag the other half by the scruff of their neck and force them you know, into their uh, form we need to arrive to a consensus in all of these societies. Some, you know, at least try to find some middle ground because our enemies are biting at the chops <laughs> to jump on us. And uh, we're not helping our cause by constantly sowing division in society. Yeah, you definitely get a sense, you know, the Hamas, <clears throat> you know, they smelled blood in the water. There was there was even talk of civil war in Israel. You know, I remember uh, hearing. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. <clears throat> so. Uh, what do you think? Do you feel like Israel, you know, I, I remember after 9-11, you know, suddenly the United States for about two weeks, we were united, uh, you know, and then and then shortly thereafter, we kind of went back to our divided, you know, and do you do you feel like this will unite Israel? Uh, it seems like maybe it's already happening short term. What about the long term? Yeah, absolutely. And this has always been the blind spot of the Arab slash Islamic world. On the one hand, they see the divisions in Israel between Hasidic Jews, secular Jews, Mizrahim, which are Sephardic Jews versus Ashkenazi Jews. And they say, look, the Jews aren't even a real people. They're just tribes of people, colonizers of Palestine, totally negating, you know, what unifies the Jewish people, which is our historical bonds, you know, uh, and, and, and whether we like it or not, our enemies, the anti-Semites of the world always have treated us the same, whether we're secular or not. Uh, so, no, I, I would say they, uh, unfortunately, and they do this all the time, they underestimate the bond of the Jewish people that comes together, in my opinion, like no other, when under an existential threat as this is currently and accurately being depicted, this is an existential uh, battle because the world is looking on at how Israel will respond to this Hamas atrocity. If Israel shows weakness, and doesn't respond uh, with a very strong arm, then others will say, look at these weak Jews. They're weak in their convictions. Uh, let, let's pile on on them. Uh, the whole world is watching, and some of the best interviews I've seen on Israeli media across the whole political spectrum, people realize this is an existential threat. The world is watching how Israel handles this to see what these Jews are made of. And, uh, and I think the Arabs and Muslims have underestimated Israel again, its ability to come together under such an existential threat. Yeah, you know, even uh, George, you know, even Joe Biden yesterday in his comments mentioned his his gold in my ear, uh, you know, experience back in the day when she reminded him that the Jews have nowhere else to go. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, as the United States, we take a hit in New York City you know, or, or even Los Angeles, we're this giant country and, you know, we've got elbow room. I think a lot of the world kind of forgets the Jews in Israel uh, really, you know, they don't have an option. I mean, there is there is no other option than to defend. Um, do you do you feel like Israel still has that kind of resolve? I remember one time up on Masada, you you uh, explained for me, you, you talked about Israel kind of has, what do they call it, the Samson option sort of Samson. What, what tell, tell me about that a little bit. Well, sure. And let me preface it just by saying that without the so-called West Bank, 
or what Israelis call Judea and Samaria, the country is only nine and a half miles wide. That means that it has no strategic depth. So just to help a, a non-military expert understand what I'm saying, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, the, the Ukraine as a country is hundreds and hundreds of miles wide, maybe 800 miles wide. Okay, and therefore the Russians can conquer even 20, 30, 40, 50 miles of Ukraine. It doesn't it comprise an existential threat on Ukraine because Ukraine still has hundreds of miles left to wage a counteroffensive. When you live in a country that's only nine and a half miles wide, you have no strategic depth. Even a half a kilometer is, is too much for the enemy to, you can't even concede that to the enemy. So within the country, there's a realization that uh, in all these wars with its neighbors, each war of this kind is an existential threat because the country doesn't have strategic depth. The Sanson option refers to a, a and I, I'm not saying that that's the official government name for it. It, it, it was coined by an author, an observer of Israel that says that like Samson, when he was confronted with his final act, uh, all right, I'm going to kill, uh, we're going to kill my enemies, but in the act, I'll have to take myself in the process. You know, the mentality is that since the Holocaust, what's that expression never again mean? doesn't mean that people aren't going to rise up and try to annihilate us again as a people. But what it says is now we have the ability to take out our enemies with us even if it means bringing down the whole house on our own heads. We'll take that over, there's no more freebies. 80 years ago, the Nazis killed one out of every three Jews on the planet with impunity. And, and let's be honest, there were no real repercussions. Many of them escaped justice and ended up living out their lives on the beaches of Brazil and Argentina. And what we say today is never again is there is no impunity anymore for killing Jews. The Jewish people today have a country that's armed to the teeth with the ability and the will to defend itself at all costs. And I think that's what's referred, what you're referring to yeah. is a Samson. Yes, you know, throughout history, um, obviously, you mentioned the Holocaust, but, you know, but people uh, have wanted to eliminate the Jewish people um, uh, throughout all the ages, um, you know, but what's shocking is, you know, you know, Genesis 12 talks about, I will bless the nations that bless Israel, curse the nations that curse Israel, but those nations end up being destroyed. You know, whether it's Haman of the Old Testament, all the way to Hitler, you know, the Holocaust, you know, what's, what do you see as the real reason these groups like Hamas uh, want to destroy the Jews? You know, I think we, we might have wrong views as Americans of what the real intent of these people, sure. you know, really, really would be. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be really blunt, maybe more blunt than most people. The Islam of Hamas and like organizations, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, is a nihilistic religion that seeks to eliminate all of what they consider the other. The other includes Jews, the other includes Christians, the other includes, you know, gay people, lesbians, that whole trans, anybody that doesn't bend the knee to their theology of uh, this nihilistic Islam is a legitimate target for destruction. The, according to Hamas's own charter, and they quote a famous hadith. Hadith is referring to the oral tradition of Muhammad. The end will not come till the rock and the tree cry out, all Muslim come, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. That is a nihilistic world view. And uh, Hamas, the people that uh, 
participated in that opening salvo and killed the youth, uh, you know, the 260 youth at the, uh, the concert were uh, decapitated babies on a kibbutz, uh, burned others alive. That is their theology that governs them. And now I'm going to also say something, you know, again, that you may not hear from everybody. When you have an enemy, when two people enter into a fight, your enemy often determines what the bar of the fight will be. In other words, you may intend for it to just be a boxing match, but your enemy pulls a knife or a gun and says, no, this is to the death. No one in Israel wants to annihilate anybody. Nobody in Israel wants to annihilate its neighbors or annihilate Arabs or annihilate Muslims. But Gaza and a, the, the people that rule Gaza and a significant, a significant portion of their population estimated to be up to 85% of that population has the same nihilistic views as Hamas, which uh, governs them. And therefore, what's the bar to this? They've set the bar. They've said one of us will be destroyed at the end of this Arab-Israeli conflict. That's how it's going to end in their eyes, you know, or the global jihad. Either the Jew uh, disappearing from the earth or the other side disappearing from the earth. But they've set the bar at that. You know, and uh, it means you have no choice but to, to fight them and address them at the bar that they've set. It's not us that set the bar at that. So why am I saying this? In the coming weeks and months, we're going to be shocked at the scale of carnage of this war. And even some of the most pro-Israel people are going to be challenged and say, how could you, how could you possibly defend these people? This may end with the deaths of tens of thousands of people, maybe more. Remember that the enemy of Israel has set the bar at this level of carnage. They have turned it into an all-or-nothing war. It is, not a, it is not a war to bring Israel to a peace table, a negotiation table to negotiate the borders of the country. It is a war of extermination. That is the bar that they've set it at, and therefore they alone are responsible for whatever carnage follows in the war whose price tag they've set at that price. Yes, you know, I mean, just one of the things I feel like for years, especially if you go to the universities here in America, um, the narrative is always there's just a small contingency of fundamentalist, you know, nihilistic, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I remember in, in my daughter's high school, they, they, they got upset with my daughter because she was talking about, you know, this, this worldview, you know, the nihilistic worldview of, the, of that group. And, and the teacher told her to stop talking about it because she said Christians are exactly the same thing that blow up abortion clinics. And um, so there's this trying to compare, you know, but when I see in Gaza, you know, them taking a, one of these girls' bodies in the back of a pickup truck from the party, it's not just a few people. There's, there's thousands of people in the street celebrating. Um, I see I see Palestinians in the West Bank, um, you know, even in Jerusalem, celebrating. Um, you know, what do you, you know, the, you mentioned the, you know, the percentage of people in Gaza, because one of the narratives is, well, you know, God, the, the Hamas is the crazy ones, but they're going to, you know, hide behind all these innocent people in, in Gaza. Um, you know, how does, how does Israel deal with that um, sort of rhetoric or, or narrative um, you know, and, and how, and what, what that percentage is interesting to me, is that not just in Gaza, but what about in the rest of the world, even all these people that might be crossing the border into the United States in our Southern border, should we sure. be thinking about that stuff? <clears throat> sure. 
Wow, wow. So you, you, you've, you've really touched on several things and allow me to respond uh, on all, at all spheres that you've just touched. First of all, you cited what I was going to cite. In other words, you, you and I are really thinking syner uh, synergetically together on this. <laughs> One of the most iconic images that will live forever from the opening salvo was the body of Shani Luke, the German-Israeli tourist that you were referring to with broken legs and her corpse uh, being driven back into the Gaza Strip and thousands of rank-and-file Gazans, not Hamas people, Gazans running up to the truck to defile her body, to spit at her. Okay, so yes, uh, that, that's, I just want to make sure everybody knows her name there, Shani Luke, that's her name. And uh, by the way, another iconic video of a girl who was alive being driven into Gaza uh, taken off the back of a Jeep who was bleeding from between her legs, which meant obviously that she had been raped, part of the jihad. Uh, she had been raped and taken alive to, you know, who knows what other things she's experiencing right now as a hostage in Gaza, again, by rank and file people. Uh, so I would say if you look at it, it's it's at the Islamic world is, let's say, uh, for our case in point, concentric circles, you know, starting with Gaza. I would say Gaza, overwhelmingly its population, subscribes to this nihilistic worldview. Hamas is Gaza. Gaza is Hamas. That doesn't deny that there may be 10 to 15 percent of the population there that doesn't subscribe to it. But uh, I used this in another interview last night. We all remember the famous dialogue between Abraham and God when God said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham said, but if there's 50 righteous, you know, uh, will you destroy it? And God said, no, if, there's, if I can find 50, I won't destroy it. And if you remember, the dialogue whittles it all the way down to maybe five people. And God says, if there's five people, I won't destroy it. And people expect Israel to be like God. Only God is able to, to know when there's that many crazed people, who are the 5%, who are the 10%, who are the 15%. It's absolutely impossible uh, for our limited and finite understanding when we're waging war against a population that's saturated with Jew hatred like the Gaza Strip. You can't expect Israel now when they uh, root Hamas out root and stock from the Gaza Strip to be able to know who are the, you know, who's the 10%, who's the 15%. Unfortunately, good people get uh, consumed by the choices of the society that they're in. There are consequences for the values we embrace as a society. Gaza as a society has embraced a nihilistic religion, which means that now innocent people who don't subscribe to it will be consumed by the fire that falls upon it. It's a tragedy, but again, we're not God, and, and only God can sort out ultimately, you know, who's who in all this. But uh, the state of Israel, even liberal Europe, the European Union today, said that what Hamas did was an act of war, and that Israel has every right now to treat the Gaza Strip as a belligerent, uh, and Hamas regime to be treated as a belligerent. None of us, including myself, want to see any innocent people die. And when I say innocent, I'm narrowing the scope. Not, not to all civilians, but to those civilians who truly are prisoners to Hamas's uh, nihilistic uh, worldview who don't subscribe to it. There are Christians in the Gaza Strip, by the way, uh, of all kinds, you know, evangelicals, Catholics. There are people, obviously, other than 
the nihilist. And yet, unfortunately, they too will be caught up in the nihilistic tidal wave that's taken over uh, the thought processes and value uh, formation of that society. Now, you asked about other, I'm sorry, you no, asked ahead. about others. So look, one of the, one of the lights in all this, and I've been, uh, it's funny, I never really resorted to Twitter until the last few days. One of the, one of the things that I've seen from Twitter are a lot of individuals, and these are, these are serious individuals. These are individuals with at least a couple hundred followers on Twitter, so I assume that these are more than just everyday people. These are people from the Gulf Arab countries in the Persian Gulf that made peace with Israel under the Abraham Accords, siding with Israel and saying that it has a right to defend itself and, and, and divorcing, its, divorcing themselves as Muslim individuals from everything that Hamas is doing uh, since this war begun. So it's important to say that there are not all of Islam uh, and not all individuals are nihilistic. Uh, here in America, I have living nearby me, uh, where I'm presently at, I don't wanna say where I'm at, but where I'm presently at, uh, uh, Egyptian, uh, neighbors who are not only great Muslims, great na I mean, great great neighbors who 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 have been a blessing to us as neighbors and to my family as neighbors. I don't claim that all Muslims are savage nihilistic people like Hamas or 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 critical mass of people in Gaza that have uh, subscribed to those point of views, and it's important to say that. Uh, so I, I agree with that. And I, then one last thing, Brett, I'm ahead, sorry, you mentioned the southern border. Uh, I promise, right? No, you you brought up so many good points. And I want to hit <laughs> Ever since I would say already for at least a decade, you've had such a porous border here in the United States. There's no way to negate or to, to, to dismiss the, the, the assertion that it's very likely sleeper cells have entered this country even since the days of 9-11. You know, uh, for the last 20 years, you've probably had sleeper cells aggregating here in the United States in different places waiting for that moment. You know, and Hamas's own leader today asked all Muslims, wherever they be on the planet, to join the jihad, you know, and 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 commit uh, jihad as lone wolves even. So I, I, think, I think the war has potential to spill over even here in America, so uh, yes, the border, regardless of what you believe about, you know, the whole, you know, illegal, legal, all that Im stuff, immigration. When a country, when a country, uh, when a country doesn't take its border seriously, uh, it's the very first job of a sovereign government is to in is secure its sovereign borders. Or you're not a country. It's that simple. You're, you, 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 it's the number one job and demarcation of any state polity is your border. And that's uh, not a political statement. That is a common statement. And it's true that there's not just economic refugees coming here for, uh, for financial gain, you know, or, or, you know, you hear people fleeing, third, you know, uh, d uh, distressed areas in Latin America. There's also nefarious agents and maybe even of the global jihad that have poured in and i would be shocked that they haven't yeah you know that that um, do you you know we see this this spreading as a multi-front war you know here um you know they've for sure you know with gaza and hamas we're seeing hamas we're seeing hezbollah in lebanon starting to 
fire rockets, even from Syria yesterday, uh, there were some rockets coming. Um, so do you see this spreading uh, with like just with that, you know, southern border of the United States? But what about France and what about, um, you know, around the world? Are, are we going to see do you think this is going to spread or do you think this oh. is just kind of a Israel's going to take care of Hamas and then it's uh, we're going to have peace? Well, look, we're already seeing it in the form of every single major city, including, and this isn't a major city, Kirkland of all places, you know, where, where Costco is based. Kirkland had a big pro-Palestinian uh, protest or demonstration on behalf of Hamas. Uh, and you see, the problem is that these things devolve quickly as they did in Sydney, Australia, two days ago into a gas to Jews chant. Um, for any of you that want to go and see footage of this, just Google, you know, uh, Hamas or pro-Palestinian rally in Sydney, Australia, where thousands of people were shouting in unison in English, gas the Jews. So there's obviously a more nefarious side to all this pro-Palestinianism. It, 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 they often attempt to mask a less savory side of it, which of course is, again, this nihilistic view of let's kill all the Jews. Um, in uh, Philadelphia, in New York, in uh, Denver, Colorado, in Toronto, Canada, in Montreal, you're already seeing all this. Uh, and I think that every Jewish institution, be it a synagogue or other, you know, day schools, private schools, anything that's outwardly or overtly associated with the Jews here in North America should harden the target, should have individuals who are armed uh, we have in the United States a Second Amendment, and now it's the time for Jews to uh, exercise their Second Amendment rights. Uh, and I think every one of these synagogues and institutions, and, and look, it even goes by extension churches, but I know a lot of churches that already have taken care of that. But uh, I think if the synagogue world hasn't caught up to this, that they too need to have armed people. I wouldn't attend any synagogue in this country that I don't know has uh, several individuals and a battle plan for how to respond uh, to, to uh, an infiltration like which happened at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue, you know, several yep. years ago. Yeah. So so with with the nihilistic worldview, you know, some people are saying, well, this was just, um, you know, the, the Hamas uh, trying to disrupt the uh, Saudi talks uh, or the Abraham Accords. Um, do you think there was some of that or was that coming from, and, you know, and what do you think, you know, I noticed that in Biden's speech yesterday, he didn't mention Iran, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, do you think Israel's going to uh, take a, a proactive uh, attitude more than they have with Iran because of this? What's your thought about that? Sure. So, look, as it relates to your question about timing, you know, why the, why this time? I think it was definitely a convergence of of uh, the divisions in Israel and the the rumors of a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia, uh, which Iran is very much against. Uh, both because it's Iran's a jihadist state, but it's also a Shiite state that hates the Sunnis. You have th those are the the polarities of the Islamic world. You know, you have Tehran, which is the seat of the Shiite world, and you have Saudi Arabia, which is the holy. You know the the holy cities of Islam, in addition to being the head of the Sunni world. And uh, Iran wanted, of course, to sabotage all that. Now, with regard to your question about Iran, two weeks ago, one of the senior heads of uh, Hamas 
together with one of the senior heads of Hezbollah, together with a senior emissary of the Iranian regime, met together in Beirut. And the Wall Street Journal, you know, a mainstream newspaper, did a very good investigative uh, report that came out about this. You can all Google that Wall Street Journal report from a couple of days ago about Iran's role in this. When the Israeli government was uh, confronted with this, you know, uh, whether they think Iran is directly involved or not, they tried to dial that back because they don't want it to turn into a regional war this this, this far uh, in advance. I'm not saying there's people in Israel that don't think it will turn into a regional war. I think it's going to turn into a regional war. But it would be best for Israel to deal with each appendage of the snake at a, one at a time. First deal with Hamas and Gaza, then Hezbollah, then Iran, rather than a multi-front war at the same time. But look, there's men who have led in history, and then there's men who are led by history, whether they like it or not. And whether we like it or not, sometimes the momentum of things lead us to where we don't want it to go. Uh, so even though I, I do think it's going to become a multi-front war, even though I would prefer for that multi-front war to be fought one theater at a time, doesn't mean that it will. Uh, now, to speak outside the echo chamber, which I always do, I refuse to be part of any echo chamber in politics or, or anything like that. To the current administration's credit, there's two flotillas, two battle groups of aircraft carriers that have been deployed to Israel by the United States. There's been a an airplane that's landed in the last 24 hours with advanced weapons uh, for all exigencies. Uh, the United States has in the Negev Desert a massive, massive arms cache that's there to be used in emergencies, whether American forces themselves need it in the Middle East, but they also allow Israel to have access to it in emergencies. The United States has shown itself to be uh, to show up uh, with with no conditions, by the way, uh, and the speech that President Biden gave yesterday was as supportive as any speech could have been. Uh, again, and it was unconditional support. So, so I, I think that too is important because, again, you know, it's why is America sending these two flotillas there to uh, broadcast to the other countries like Iran? Don't get involved. You know, let, let it stay parochial between Israel and Gaza, but just know if it spreads into a regional war, it, it may not stay just between you and Israel, as you think, you know, in other words, to Iran. You know, you don't think it's just you and Israel. Maybe other infidels will join the fight. So uh, we don't know where this is going to go. But I do think, I think this war will go down as a, a history-changing war, just like the Six-Day War. Uh, 73 war, the face of the Middle East and the world will be different yeah. following this war. That I have no doubt about. It, it's something I feel in the depth of my bones. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And um, I don't want to take your whole day. I sure appreciate you taking this time. I'm having Just a good time. A couple more so, questions uh, you, you uh, for you. Um, it, you know, <laughs> if Hamas is removed completely out of out of Gaza, does it just sit there in total destruction? Or who, if Hamas is, is removed, which is the government there, um, yeah. Who will take your, its place? It's a great question. Usually people say that Israel would replace it by establishing the PLO, which rules the West Bank, 
to rule uh, Gaza, but to be honest with you, it's not like the Palestine Authority is this righteous organization either. One of the reasons why the Gazans voted Hamas into power, in addition to the nihilism of the religion that they, uh, they've embraced there, was that the PLO, when they ruled Gaza, was such a corrupt organization. You know, and Hamas sold itself as this like, uh, is we go by the book, we go by Islam, you know, we're honest, we keep an honest accounting of the books, you know, uh, and therefore they, the PLO fell out of favor with Gaza too. But I don't consider the Palestinian Authority to be this righteous alternative uh, to Hamas. Uh, they too are, or they may not express it in the terms of Islamic nihilism, but they too have always sought Israel's destruction. Uh, so look, it's a great question. I don't know how much of Gaza is going to survive this war to start with. What's going to be left to govern there? Uh, again, we may be surprised at the scale of destruction that's about to come. Uh, so you know, it's it, now we're venturing into the to a you know a frontier that I just can't venture into because it's the great unknown. Yeah, because you know that that seems like one of the mistakes we often make is we don't. Uh, anticipate, you know, what are we replacing and who's going to be there? Can, can you almost make things worse in some ways? But I think Israel has a very clear, uh, you know, directive. They, they know they can't allow Hamas to stay there uh, any longer. And it seems like the world is, is the one time the world seems to be somewhat supportive of that. Yeah, to my, to, I, yeah, to my shock, I, I've seen CNN uh, anchors as well as uh, reporters on the ground actually break out in uh, tears. You know, I saw Anderson Cooper break out in tears. I've seen, you know, lower level people uh, as they've been interviewing, you know, the parents of these girls or others that have been abducted to the Gaza Strip. Uh, yeah, I've actually been shocked at the, but you and I know that that can change. Uh, you see, when Israel really asserts its might and a lot of people are killed, you know, again, I, th I think I said even in this interview with you, even those of you that are very pro-Israel are about to be tested like you've never been tested before to how far your support goes. Are you going to still be willing to support Israel? Tens of thousands of, of uh, people die in Gaza or tens of thousands of people die in Lebanon or, or you know, right, you're, you're going to be tested, you know, and, uh, and therefore you all have to take stock each day of where you're at and not just your convictions but your ability to stand behind those convictions uh i think we're all going to be tested in ways that surprise us in the next uh few weeks well and, and the world has proven especially with the jews if you ask me you know they will we'll, we'll see jews who've been slaughtered in a holocaust or jews that have been you know uh, persecuted anti-semitism and and we show moments of of compassion but as soon as Israel, you know, flexes its muscle, um, suddenly Israel doesn't have a right to do that. And it's amazing how fickle people are. I almost sense a biblically proportioned, um, you know, it's it, how do you explain where that comes from? I think it's it's um, it's just. Well, like, I have a cynical view of it, which says that the world loves to enshrine and treat as noble souls those Jews that are willing to go as sheep to the slaughter. Uh, but as soon as the mighty Gideons of the Jews rise up, you know, the, the Jews that say, no, we're not going to go like sheep to the slaughter. Those days are over. Those Jews are vilified. Yeah. In other words, people love to build museums and shrines to the dead Jews that uh, uh, go like sheep to the slaughter. 
but they don't, uh, for some reason, they have an aversion for the Jews that go down with the fight. It, it, to me, it's, uh, it's kind of almost a demonic, uh, like there's a, there's a demonic element to that in the way people feel about that. You and I are supposed to join forces and lead a tour uh, in a few weeks uh, in Israel. I've got you know, a bunch of Athey Creekers uh, that are ready to roll and go there. Um, you know, other tours have been canceled already. Uh, you know, um, what would you tell the people who are signed up for our tour? Uh, what do we look for? How do we think? Um, you know, the tour may get canceled. We may not even be able to go, maybe the airlines. But um, so far, we haven't had that, you know, shut down on us. What, what would you tell the folks? So look, thankfully, your tour is uh, a mo- about a month away. Is that correct? Uh, so 20 days. Uh, most war- say, how, how far away 20 is days. it? Pro- Tw- oh, okay. 20 days. <laughs> look, a lot of wars in the Israel and the Middle East only last for a couple of weeks. But... Uh, Look, thankfully, the agent that's hosting you guys, it's hosted by the two agents, Morningstar, Stateside, and Sarel uh, in Israel. Both of them are extremely responsible, extremely competent, won't do a single thing to endanger your lives or your interests. Our first uh, goal is to serve you, and there's no higher service than protecting you and, and, and worrying about your personal security. So, you know, uh, whatever those two bodies decide, and like I said, they're very competent. They have people on the ground. And uh, there's a chance that that tour will happen, and there's a chance that that tour will not happen. Uh, and therefore, it, you're, it's all in the sovereignty of God and events that are out of our control. Yeah, I, I think we're we're good either way. We, I think, you know, a tour seems fairly insignificant when you see what's really happening to people. And so, you know, at Athey Creek, we're just praying, you know, we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, we're praying for you and your friends who live there. And uh, and also, you know, that uh, you'll, you know, with, with, you know, the coronavirus and with with this, your your tourism industry in Israel, that's one of the top uh, economic uh, suppliers of, of Israel's wealth, right? I mean, uh, how does Israel uh, do with this uh, economically? Now, look, fortunately, the state of Israel over the last couple of decades is, is really diversified its economy, and people will be shocked. I don't think tourism is even in the top five money makers oh. anymore in Israel. Uh, you have the high-tech industry, uh, startups and high-tech, that's probably the number one. Uh, you have, uh, believe it or not, the diamond cutting industry is a $10 billion industry in Israel. That exceeds the tourism industry. Uh, the arms industry, Israel exports its arms to other uh, countries in the world. I'm not sure tourism is on the top five anymore. Of course, it affects me personally and anyone who works in the tourism industry. But the country, and this is a credit to the country, this is a credit to the country's uh, diversity and dyna, uh, how would you say, dyna, dyna, dynamicism, you know, uh, Israel's a dynamic country with a lot of intelligent, talented people. It's also a very young population, you know, where a huge part of the population is under the age of 35, and they bring all that energy to whatever endeavors they do. So uh, it will survive economically even if tourism were to disappear for a few months. As for those of us that work in the tourism industry, God help us. 
But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's all I can say. Yeah, Israel's being called one of the new economic superpowers of the world. Um, and it's, it's quite impressive to see, which to me follows some of the biblical prophecies about how Israel's going to be a time in strength and security, uh, even though the world is still very much against them, you know. And the sad irony of it is that the very Netanyahu will take, who will, and perhaps rightfully, take the blame for all this. He probably played a larger role than any person in Israel's history in that economic revolution that turned Israel from a socialist kibbutz economy into the uh, Silicon Valley of Asia. Yeah, yeah. So it just showed, look at that. You talk about closing a circle. Israel wouldn't have the military power it has today without that wealth. You need to generate wealth to support a major military. Uh, and so, and he gets, a, I give him a lion's share of the credit for that economic revolution that turned Israel into a Silicon Valley of its part of the world. And yet he rightfully will be blamed, you know, uh, for, for being asleep at the wheel when this happened. Mm. So, uh, there's the full circle of his, his career. Well, Steve, I'm so thankful. Would you do this again? Uh, you know, it'd be great to have you on. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very insightful and helpful having, having your uh, input and information is just uh, really valuable to us. I love it, Brett. Uh, I, I had a great time. And now that I'm unemployed, I think I'm always available. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, absolutely. All right. God bless you, buddy. You too, you too, and all the Athe Creekers and everybody who views you from around the world. May the shalom of Yahweh, the God of Israel, be upon us all. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Bye bye. Well, that was great having Steve, the tour guide. Uh, hope to have him back. He uh, he is just a wealth of knowledge and. Uh, and just a good friend to have uh, to talk about these things. Um, you know, uh, what are we seeing today? You know, Steve and I were just talking about what's going on, you know, geopolitically and and uh, all that. But for Bible prophecy, uh, what are we seeing with this current war in Israel? Um, I would say minimally we're seeing birth pains that Jesus talked about. In Matthew 24, 8, all of these are the beginning of sorrows, Jesus said, the beginning of sorrows. And the word sorrow there is odin in the Greek, which means... Um, like birth pains, a woman in travail with ch child, and and um, and it's uh, you know I believe a lot of these things we see in the world could just be more birth pains, you know, contractions that get more frequent and more intense. This is a very either a very intense contraction, uh, bringing in the end times, um, or it really is the contraction that sort of births the child, if you would. That is the second coming of Christ. Um, you see, the, the war in Israel uh, could be leading to one of two major biblical prophecy events. Um, and I would say for sure it could be the, you know, leading to the Gog-Magog War, or it could be uh, leading to even the Battle of Armageddon. Both wars, uh, nations aim their weapons at Israel, but it's not just a single nation. And it's also not just a political group like uh, you know Hamas. It's a nations, uh, and it's a confederation of nations. When you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you've got, um, you know, this mysterious prophecy of Gog, Magog. Uh, Gog is a person title. 
Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Magog is a place. Uh, and if you do, we've done whole studies. You can look up our study on Ezekiel 38 and 39 about how um, we, we believe it's, it's very likely that uh, Magog speaks of Russia and republics of the uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, the modern day uh, names, uh, Russia, uh, Meshach, perhaps Moscow, or ancient Turkey, uh, Tubal is listed, listed there, um, and Persia, which is modern day Iran, uh, Kush, which is Sudan and Ethiopia, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Turkey, um, Armenia. These are all places um, that the Bible says in modern times, there'll be a confederation of nations coming against Israel. So while I don't believe the Hamas attack is a Gog Magog, but one thing that I'm watching is what Russia does about this, um, because Israel is about to, I believe, um, you know, like Steve was just saying, uh, you know, pummel the Gaza Strip and, and uh, try to wipe out Hamas. What's going to be left of, of Gaza Strip is questionable. But what's the world going to do in uh, relation to that? What's Russia going to do? Um, and that's stuff to watch, uh, to see what Russia's response will be with Iran, uh, because that's the, the configuration that's going to be pointing to the Gog-Magog war. Um, you know, I say the Battle of Armageddon is another possibility because, um, you know, um, all, all the nations will kind of turn toward uh, against Jerusalem. In, in the Gog-Magog war, uh, it's interesting where Ezekiel 38, 9 says, Thou shalt ascend like a storm. And thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and thy people with thee. Um, so it's a storm. We, we saw a little mini storm with the Hamas coming in, but I think the Ezekiel 38 prophecy talks about more of these nations coming into Israel, but not a thousand, uh, you know, uh, Hamas fighters. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more when it comes to Gog Magog. Um, you know, don't forget in Israel, uh, when the Gog Magog happens, there's going to be nations around and there's going to be various nations. We, we uh, showed you this in our teaching of Ezekiel 38 and 39, how there's the various nations. There's Israel on the map. And then there's the nations that are the attackers that I just listed, including, you know, uh, Turkey, Iran, Russia, um, and a few others. Um, but then there's the protesting bystander nations who are going to say, hey, what are you guys doing attacking Israel? But we won't have anything to say about that. And that is the nations, including the United States, I think, perhaps, along with others. The, the pro and then there's the conspicuously absent um, nations, which might be the United States as well, absent. One of the things about what we're seeing right now is the United States is not absent. We've sent that huge military force in the Mediterranean there, the Gerald R. Ford, um, you know, uh, carrier group. Uh, we're doing a ma major show of power, not just a protesting bystander. So this is one of the reasons why this may not be uh, the Ezekiel 38, you know, attack or uh, that which leads to it. Uh, but it does say in Ezekiel 38, 16, thou shalt come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days and I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. So all that to say, um, you know, this I, I don't believe this is the Gog-Magog invasion or war, but it could lead up to that. But there's a lot that needs to take place, if you ask me, for the Gog-Magog thing to uh, really 
come out of this. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, the Battle of Armageddon, it's a real battle in the future. Uh, Book of Revelation talks about it. Um, Antichrist will be leading that charge. Um, that's going to happen, uh, you know, um, uh, there during the tribulation period. So we as Christians will be taken up before that time. But could the events in Israel today be leading to the Battle of Armageddon? We could see a trajectory where that would be. So, um, you know, um, you know, when it comes to Jesus and his return, you know, in the tribulation period, Matthew 25, 31 says, when the son of man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, with him then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. That's going to be um, the second coming of Christ. And then the end of the battle Armageddon is when Revelation 19, 14, uh, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed with fine linen and clean. That's us. So that's when Jesus binds Satan, sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 uh, talks about that. Um, at Armageddon, the Lord Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, Revelation 16, 19. But that's when all things will be made right. So uh, these things could be leading to that point, but, um, but I think we should keep our finger on the pulse. Israel is the epicenter of all things Bible prophecy. And so what do we do in light of all these things? I think we should be busy about what Psalm 22, 122 reminded us, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for they shall prosper that love thee. And these are all signs of the times. Luke 21, 28 says, uh, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. So uh, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, we are trusting in the Lord we need to pray for Israel. Uh, we need to be wise as a nation. Um, some of the things we talked about, about this bleeding over, not only just to other countries, but maybe even the United States, the um, you know, nihilistic, um, you know, uh, fundamentalist Islamic worldview. that's um, been quiet here in America for a while. Uh, we should be watching and ready uh, for that. But we really need to keep our eyes on Jesus, our hope, our savior, our love, our Lord. That's what we do in, in these difficult days. So there it is, just a quick update tonight for you. Um, and uh, we'll keep these coming uh, and uh, maybe bring Steve back again. That'd be awesome. But until then, let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll call tonight. Lord, we are thankful that you are the author, um, not of confusion or strife, but you are the author of peace. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us that peace that passes understanding. I pray that even for Israelis who have been so brutally treated, that you would give them uh, a peace in the midst of their their, their warfare over there. Um, Lord, for all those that are um, not even involved with the, the political or the religious uh, fanaticism of the Hamas, um, we know there's people that are hurting. May, may people turn to you, uh, both in Gaza, uh, in Jerusalem, in Israel, wherever they may be, may people turn their eyes and hearts to you and be saved and uh, um, receive the gospel that, that you came to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Um, but until then, may we be lights in this dark world. May we speak truth and point people to you, Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining me on this late evening and God bless you guys. If you think of it um, as this is going to be on YouTube, go ahead and uh, hit subscribe if you haven't already on our YouTube channel, Nathan Creek. And you can also share this video. I think there's some in important information that's not necessarily getting out to all the different uh, groups uh, that might be helpful. So uh, you can share this on your uh, various social media platforms. But until next time, God bless you.